We are in John chapter 15 and 16 today. If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 902 this morning. We'll begin in John chapter 15, starting in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is the word of the Lord. I felt prompted this morning as the children were exiting out of of the sanctuary to just make this comment to you. Because we have people who come into our fellowship at different times and at at different seasons of the year and, and new people. Um, not everyone always hears these things. But one of the things about what we are going to do, we're going to come to the table here a little later this morning. And in our tradition, we do not have a specific confirmation time where we bring children through confirmation, but seek to make all of the ministries of our church focus on the gospel so that children at the point at which God opens their eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ that they can respond accordingly. And so children will tend to respond at different times through that process. But one of the things that we want you to know is if on a Sunday, for instance, when we have communion, if if your child is beginning to express interest in staying or wondering why they can't participate in the Lord's Supper, to let you know that it is certainly not um, not in any way, um, this is the wrong way to say it in a negative way, but it's not wrong for them to stay. If you you as a parent are certain that they are, are putting their hope in the gospel and understand it and understand the significance of the table, we certainly welcome them if they want to stay with you on those particular Sundays to be able to participate in communion to do that. We leave that discretion to the parents at what age they feel like their children understand what it means to remember as we come to the table. So if you want help with that, we certainly are willing to help with that, to visit with your children about that, Pastor Jason or myself. But we want you to know that uh, that certainly is available to you if you feel a need or they begin to express interest in that. 
This morning, what I want to begin with as we go back to the text that we've been talking about in John is I want to to share with you a bit of what we heard a couple of weeks ago. Two weeks ago tomorrow, uh, myself along with the other staff and other uh, leaders in the church attended the Bethlehem Conference for Pastors and Church Leaders, which has been broadened beyond that to some other tracks as well. But there were about 10 of us from Richland who attended that particular conference. And the keynote address on the very first evening was titled, Think It Not Strange, Fiery Trials and the Testimony of Christ. And I've got a copy of that keynote address here with me this morning. And I just want to quote a portion of that because it has great, I think, application to the text that we're in this morning as John is preparing his disciples here before his departure. Let me pick it up in the middle of this particular address. I'm not going to read all of it. In fact, I'm reading a very small portion of it to you this morning, but I think you will understand why in just a moment. And this is what it says as I pick it up. The assumption of this conference is there is little cultural advantage to calling yourself a Christian in America today. The home field advantage that Christianity has enjoyed for 300 years is over. The worldview and the moral convictions of mainstream American culture are increasingly at odds with the worldview and the moral convictions taught in the Bible. It goes on to say this. So if you picture a continuum with a mere, with the mere absence of cultural benefits for Christians on one end. So here is of a, of a continuum is the point at which there are an absence of cultural benefits to be a Christian at this end. And on the other end, the aggressive persecution of Christians on the other end. One end is here, one end is here. No cultural advantage, severe persecution of believers. Christianity in America is now on that continuum and is moving from indifference to derision to exclusion to hostility. Where we are on that continuum depends on where we are and whom you ask. Where God will take us, forward or backward, I don't know. He can do either. He is God. And so it's not a prophetic utterance that's being made there. That's, that's what he means by that. God is God, and he can do what he wants. It's just a recognition. I think a right recognition of where our culture is today. And part of what was said in that address that I will paraphrase is that there was a time in America when it was culturally advantageous to be a Christian. It, it in fact, as you uh, would want to say it, the cultural cost, he says it this way, the cultural cost of calling yourself a Christian is starting to outweigh the cultural benefits. In other words, there was a cultural benefit to being a Christian. And in fact, the, the point he made at that conference, or the conference made, is that we're 300 years, really, that we've lived in that kind of a situation. 300 years in America where there's a cultural benefit to being a Christian. But what has dramatically changed in these days is we are now approaching that point where there is no longer a cultural benefit to being a Christian. And in fact, in many cases, it is becoming much more of a disadvantage to be a Christian as you walk down that continuum. And again, we don't know if that will continue, whether God will intervene and there'll be another great awakening, but that's just the way it is. That's the place that we find ourselves today. And so 
I say that and I bring that to you this morning now and take you to the text that we're in. If you want to take your Bibles and go back to what was read here, basically to summarize what the text is saying to us here in the broad view is that don't be surprised when difficulty comes. Don't be surprised when difficulty comes. That's really what Jesus is telling his disciples. It should not surprise you. Now, put that in our culture today. For 300 years, I think that did not make a whole lot of sense to us in America. What Jesus was saying there. Because for 300 years, there has been a benefit, a cultural benefit to being a Christian. But now that has changed. And so I think increasingly this text unless God intervenes, unless something happens to change that, will make more sense. Hopefully today it may make more sense to us as we read it, as we look at it. The norm of history is not what we've experienced in the last 300 years. That's, that was said again and again at the conference. That is not the norm of most of history from the time of Christ. It has been the opposite of that. So, in all of that, I want us now to go back and remember the big picture of all that we've been talking about for a moment. And then we're going to make some observations specifically about what Jesus said here, and then we're going to come to the table. Remember that all of that, when Jesus comes to the point of saying in verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And don't be surprised by it. In fact, one of his contentions, one of his reasons for doing that, if you go to chapter 16 and verse 1, he says, I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. And what he means by that, don't be so surprised that you let go of what you know is true, that you walk away from it. Um, Expect it to come. Now, remember the context. All of this is in the context of Jesus saying, let not your hearts be troubled, disciples. And so for the last several weeks, we have focused on a couple of the promises that Jesus gave to his disciples. They were troubled. They they sensed something foreboding was coming, and they sensed that Jesus was pulling away and might leave. And so Jesus comes to them and says, let not your hearts be troubled. I have a place for you. We spent a lot of time talking about that and how Jesus prepared the place by preparing the way to the place. But that was one of the things he gave them as a promise. There is a place for you. When I read that quote this morning, that that the wrath of God is God's calculated, um, intentional way in which he can promise to us and provide for our everlasting good. And part of that everlasting good is in that place, most of that everlasting good. The majority, by far, of that everlasting good will occur in that place that he has for us, where there will be no sin anymore. And that's part of what his wrath has accomplished and will accomplish. So there's a place. The second thing he said, I'm going to help you to get to that place. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send you a helper. And it'll be better for you that the helper comes. It's better for you that I go so the helper can come and help you. And so we talked about that promise. We, we talked about how important it was. And both of those, again, are in the context so that you don't fall away. 
And also in the midst of that bigger picture, he said, as you appreciate those promises, as you rest in those promises, continue, keep, and keep moving toward people. Move toward people with joy and with love. In the text, look at a couple of places where it talks about that. We didn't spend a lot of time talking about the joy part of it, but you will find that in verse 11 of the text. As you read it there, he says this, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. In other words, we are to be joyful people in light of the promises. And the promises are what stoke our joy. This table, I hope this morning, stokes your joy in God and in all that he's accomplished. We ought to be the most joyful people on the planet. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As Paul said, there's a sense in which we're not flippant about it. But we ought to be the most joyful because of the promises that God has given us. So, so we move toward people with joy and with love. Uh, it says in verse 12, this is the commandment that, that, I, that you love one another as I have loved you. In other words, we're to move toward people. We're to, by being united to Christ, the vine, we're to be fruitful in moving toward people in joy and in love which will give us opportunities to talk of Christ so that people can believe in him. I mean, that's what the emphasis of all of this, that these are the promises. Don't be troubled. There's a place. I'll go with you and keep moving toward people with the message of my coming. And that's exactly what we're to do. That's the place we're to go. That's the context in which all of this statement now that he brings where he's warning them as well that if the world hates you, it hated me before you, so you shouldn't be surprised. Now, it's interesting to me, the first couple of things, there's a place for you is um, coming to troubled hearts. There's also, I'm going to go with you to that place. But it's interesting to me now that the tenor of this is to encourage their hearts, he warns them that trouble is coming. Somebody comes to you and has a troubled heart, that's probably not the first place you go to tell them that trouble is coming. Trouble is coming. And, and he warns them because he doesn't want them to fall away. He doesn't want them to be caught off guard. In the text, in the context of all of this, he says in some places, I write these things now, you don't understand them, but I write them so later you will remember them. And this is the context of that, that, that they will remember They will remember these things that he's spoken, these warnings, these promises, these warnings that he's given so that they will not fall away. He is putting things into their life they do not fully comprehend, but he knows the Holy Spirit will bring them back to them and they will remember what he said and it will help them. So now what I want to do this morning for just a bit is to to look at the text Because in this text, he gives the warning, but he also gives them reasons why they will, in fact, be hated. And reasons why it's important for him him to give them the warning, because of why it's going to happen. And there's really two things, two reasons why it's going to happen that he gives to his disciples. Um, he, he, He puts it this way, ways that they are going to come against him. They hated Jesus in verse 18, and they persecuted Jesus, they're going to persecute them. Let me look at these texts. These are the warnings. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if you go over to the latter part of verse 20, it says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
Now why? Why will they? Why did they me and why will they you? And the first reason that he gives of the why is because of his words. If you look at verse 22 of the text, it says, If I had not come and spoken to them, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty um, of sin. But it's the issue of the word. Part of the reason they came against Jesus were the words that he spoke. The words that he spoke concerning their sin. It, it laid them bare regarding their sin. Now, it wasn't the way he spoke, and this is important for us to understand. It wasn't the spirit that he spoke in that caused it. It was the words he said. And that's the way it ought to always be for us. As, as we are his representatives, and the word of God abides in us, and, and therefore flows through us to people, the, 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 the real trick in all of that and the, the really important part of all of that is that, that when we share his word, whether by our life or, or verbally to people, that we do it in the same spirit he did it. You know, the, it's interesting. He, he didn't alienate them by an arrogant spirit. We know that. He was, he was not arrogant. He was humble. Jesus came humbly as he shared what he shared. It wasn't in arrogance. There's a place in which sometimes, no matter what gets said, if it's done with arrogance, it, it repels people. But it wasn't Jesus' arrogance that repelled them. It was the word that repelled them. It wasn't because he was selfish, because he was self-centered, because he, he ran it through him. He was worried about himself. And so the words he shared were protecting some way himself. That wasn't what was happening. He wasn't selfish. He didn't do it in a mean-spirited way. Jesus did not have a mean spirit about how he shared the word to people. In fact, the scripture says things like, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's how Jesus did it. He didn't do it in a mean kind of spirit, contentious kind of way. He didn't do it in a hypocritical kind of way, where he says one thing and does another. But all of those ways, he was not arrogant, he was not selfish, he was not mean, he was not hypocritical. So it wasn't Jesus in that sense of the way he did it that caused people to respond to him, which is good for us to hear. Um, We need to be careful. As his representative, we need to be careful that we aren't causing. We aren't causing some way ourselves by the way we do it and the spirit in which we do it to cause people to come against us. We need to make sure and pray that as, as we share, that we do it in such a spirit that it is not us, but the word that is being heard. And if it is rejected, it is the word being rejected. The word of Christ, not us. That we do not become the offense, but the gospel. The scripture says the gospel is an offense. The word is an offense to the natural man. But we, we don't want to be the offense ourselves. And we need to be careful. We need to be careful that we are not the offense personally. But Jesus said, my word is why they came against me. And as you are my representative of that word, they will come against you. It's not, it's not because you're doing it wrongly that they come necessarily. The word itself 
has an ability to cut. And, and what it says here, he says, they would not be guilty except that I've spoken to them. That, that's the crux of the matter. What happens when God's word comes to people? It, it causes people to see their sin. It causes them to see um, who they are. There's an illustration that Ironside shared at one point about when the gospel began to go to inland Africa. And he tells the story of a missionary there who had a mirror that was hanging on a tree. And one day the chief, uh, the chief's wife actually, came to visit the missionary and, and she all of a sudden glanced at that tree and, and uh, she asked the missionary, whose face is that in the tree? And of course the missionary then responds back to her that it is, it is not a face in the tree, but it's your face. And so he takes the mirror off of the tree to make sure that she understands. It's not another face looking at her, but her face. And this woman, for the first time when she glanced at that tree, saw her hideous painted face and the hardened features of her face. She'd never experienced that. She'd never witnessed that before. So she she bartered with the missionary and said, I, I want to buy that mirror. I want to buy it. I want to have it. I have to have it. The missionary protested, but she wouldn't relent. He said, I have to have the mirror. And so finally the missionary gave the mirror to her and allowed her to take the mirror. And immediately upon taking the mirror, she cast it down and she broke it. As soon as it was hers to own, she broke it. And she said this, I will never have it making faces at me again. I will never have it making faces at me again. And isn't that a picture of what happens to people? Um, There's a sense in which when the word is there and they look into the word that, that they see clearly. They see clearly. And the interesting thing is it causes one of two responses really among people. When the word really comes, and, and we're not at offense in bringing it, it is the word comes. People see the word. They see themselves. And it, it really responds, I think, in one of two ways. They either, at some level, criticize the, the, the message and in, and in turn the messenger, they criticize them or they come to belief. It changes them. It's really two responses. Now, sometimes that criticism may be indifference. It may be a pulling back, a pulling away. It may not be a visible um, anger, but there's, there's really only two responses of that. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. When people see their sin, it's going to do one of two things. Either they're going to repent of that sin and look to the remedy for their sin, or they, in fact, are going to find a way to try to break it, to cast it down, to fracture it so it can't expose them any longer. And that will take all kinds of, of avenues of how it happens, from, from fairly mundane to fairly serious. But, but whatever it's indifference or whether it's some serious um, kind of action they take toward the messenger and the message, those are really the only two responses. And Jesus said the reason that they will not like you is because they do not like me. 
They don't like being exposed. They don't like that happening to them. They don't like that guilt that they sense. And they want to run away from it. So they'll come against the messenger in that sense. And then secondly, he says, I, I, they, they come against me because of the words. But then he goes on to say that they also come against me because of the works. If you look at verse 24, it says, If I had not done among them the works. He doesn't say words now. He says works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. What does he mean by that? How is that different from the words? The words, obviously, but then the works. Well, I think what it means is, is the fact that what those works exemplify is the Father. Let me, let me tell you how I get there. It says, Jesus, while he was on earth, said all the works that he did were always the works of the Father. He always referenced that whatever I do is the work of the Father. I can only do what I see the Father doing, Jesus said at one point in his ministry. In John chapter 17, verse 4, we'll come to this later, but he said, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He's speaking to the Father. I've, I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I can only do what I see the Father doing. And so when he talks about the work, I think he's talking about the whole work that the Father sent him to do. And the work that the Father sent him to do was to represent the Father. Jesus came to represent the Father. Jesus came to show us the Father. Jesus came to show us how to be reconciled to the Father. And so really I think what it is saying in that text is if if they hated you, it's because they hated me. And the reason they hated me is because they hated the Father. It's because they hated God. And at the root of all men outside of Christ, there is a hatred of God. There is a hatred. You look at and read the Ephesians chapter 2. It, it tells plainly the condition we are outside of Christ. We're dead spiritually. Men hate God ultimately hate God. And Jesus came to be the representative of the Father and they killed him. We now, as his representatives, will come to represent Jesus and the Father and we should not expect it unusual that they come after us. They either believe or in one dimension they will will resist. Now, the conclusion And then we're going to come to the table. The conclusion of that, here's where we live, folks. We've talked about the whole idea that we need to move in love and joy toward people. And who are the people we need to move in love and joy toward? Those very people. Those very people who come against us because of the name of Christ. We are to move toward them. That's what the gospel compels us to do. And uh, the danger in that moving is that as we move toward people and, and they respond negatively to us, the danger is, is a couple of things. One is the temptation is that we retaliate, that we sometimes attempt to strike back at them. Or we just become indifferent. We just say, forget it. If that's what you're going to do, I'm just going to pull away from you. I'm not even going to put you in my life. I'll just stay away. But both of those responses are wrong. Both of those responses in the context of what we're reading are wrong. We are to move toward people. Because of the gospel, because of Christ in us, we are to do what Jesus did. And he always moved toward 
people. If we don't, if, if we do something different than that, for instance, if, if because people begin to resist the word as you bring it, and, and in turn, you the messenger, if, if, we, if we begin to act wrongly and have a wrong response to that and retaliate or we begin to become indifferent, that's wrong. And here's why I believe it's wrong. Look at verse 25 with me. Look at, look at how Jesus did it. Look at the words, the very last words of that. It says, and Jesus says, they hated me without a cause. They hated me without a cause. If we retaliate or we become indifferent, there's a cause. We've created a cause. We've created something to fuel their coming against us. Jesus says they hated me without a cause. He didn't retaliate. He didn't become indifferent. He kept moving toward them to the point of it cost his life. You see, we are to move toward them. We're not to pretend. So we need to battle against that. Now, the question is, as we come to the table, how do we do that? How do we do that? He says, he says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. So when it comes in whatever form and to whatever level it comes, and it may come in increasing levels, the pressure may get ramped up if in fact what was said at that conference is true, that we're moving from the fact that there is no benefit to great disadvantage to being a believer today. What do we do? What do we do as it comes against us? Well, I think the table helps us. Let me read to you what it says as we come to the table this morning. Paul writes this about this table. He writes about what this table represents. He writes about the first night that there was a table like this. And this is what he says. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, on the night that he was betrayed, on the night that they came against him, and the night that, in fact, he was betrayed by the very people that he's going to give this to, his own disciples. He took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus just kept moving toward them. He moved toward his disciples who he knew in just a few short hours would all run away, who would all betray him. Not, not to the degree that Judas did, but they would betray him. They would run away. He kept moving toward them. And, and that's our example. That's our example. That's our model. But it's more than a model. It's more than a model because... When Jesus said, I will send you a helper, he came by his spirit to dwell in us. And as we are willing to let him work through us, we let his life in us 
keep moving toward people in love and in joy, even as they come against us. And I believe that is, in fact, the way in which the gospel will go forth and has gone forth all of these centuries. We are in a unique period of 300 years when it was easy. But most of church history has gone forth that way. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul also says that I fill up what is lacking in regards to Christ's affliction. And I rejoice that I can do that. And what he's filling up and what is lacking in regards to Christ's affliction in that affliction, that text is that Christ is no longer here on earth. What is missing is the personal presentations of the afflictions of Christ to the world. They're no longer, he's no longer here, but his church is. And so we now go forth to, to bring forth and to present the afflictions of Christ in our willingness to experience that for the sake of his name, that the gospel might go to the nations. So this morning as you come to the table, I pray that, that you will remember that we follow one who, even the night he was betrayed, kept moving forward. Let's pray. The, those that are going to help distribute can come. Father, we pray to, today that you'll help us. We pray as we receive these elements this morning, as we remember your death, burial, and resurrection, as we remember that you were the one that it was the will of the Father to crush for us and that you willingly took that for us. You continue to move toward us while we were yet sinners that we are called to follow in your steps. But you don't leave us alone in that, Lord. Your very life is in us by your Spirit to continue to do that to those around us. Help us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to receive the elements together this morning. We'll pass them in the pew and we'd ask that you would hold them if you can live under the invitation. We'll partake together. Represents the body of our Lord Jesus Christ.
sun can bid me then depart. portion of scripture before we partake. Again, in this text, in the middle of all that we've just said, right after they, Jesus said, they hated me without cause, he says this, but when the helper comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Again, the promise Jesus is not just an example. This is not just an example of how he did it. But he wants to come by his spirit to dwell in us, that his life might flow through us, to keep moving toward people in love and in joy, even as they may be rejecting the words. Take and eat and be grateful for that promise. Represents to us the blood of Christ. Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is Counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me.
my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. that he was betrayed think about who betrayed him certainly Judas but I think it's broader than that I think in, in one sense we all betrayed him we get to drink of the one we all betrayed by our sin take and be grateful stand together Father, we're grateful this morning that you don't just give us an example. Oh, but what an example it is. What a picture it is for us. But you also give us your very spirit to dwell in us. That the life of Christ can flow through us to others. Lord, teach us to allow that to happen. Teach us, Father, to let the gospel so shape us and the spirit of Christ so prune us that we can do it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in God's peace. You're dismissed.